Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Today we are looking at Acts 21, verses 18 through 40. We're at the place in Acts where Paul has completed his third missionary journey and has returned to Jerusalem. Um, on the way, he uh, met with the Ephesian elders, and he told them that he was compelled by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. His hope was to be there in time for the Feast of Pentecost. So as he, but as he and his mission team began the journey back to Jerusalem, all along the way, Christians were pleading with him not to go. They were able to spend seven days, for example, with believers from the church in Tyre. And Luke tells us they kept telling Paul that he should through the Spirit, that, they, that he should not set foot in Jerusalem. This was likely a prophetic word, um, meant to give information, meant to give warning uh, to Paul about what was to come. Uh, Paul didn't see it as a prohibition from the Spirit, but he seemed to understand it was a sentiment of the believers who didn't want him to go because of the danger that awaited him there. They were then able to spend some time with uh, Believers at the house of Philip, the evangelist who lives in Caesarea. <clears throat> Philip, you remember, was a, a man that the Lord had already used in significant ways in the first century church. He was one of the seven men who had been chosen to serve the Jerusalem church as a deacon back in Acts chapter 6. When persecution broke out against the church and believers were forced to flee, Philip went to Samaria. He preached the gospel in Samaria. And uh, many believed, and that was a significant advance of the gospel. Well, he ended up in Caesarea, where he settled down and had a family. We're told in Acts 20, verse 9, that Philip had four unmarried daughters who were prophetesses. And it seems likely they, too, were seeking to both encourage but also warn Paul about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And then a prophet named Agabus came to Philip's house to speak with Paul. We read what he did in chapter 21, verse 11. It says, coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, <clears throat> this is what the Holy Spirit says. And this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus gives a very visual illustration of the message, just like many of the Old Testament prophets did. And once again, his message was to confirm that Paul, to Paul what would happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. Well, after seeing and hearing this, all those who were gathered at Philip's house began to just plead with Paul, again, not to go through with his plan to visit Jerusalem. Paul was deeply touched by their concern for him, but he would not change his mind. He was convinced the Lord had made it clear that he was to go to Jerusalem. And what he and the believers said is important to remember. Verse 13 and 14, Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. So the believers simply, they, they stop pleading with, with Paul, and they say in a very simple way, the will of the Lord be done. Uh, that's something, of course, we all need to be content with, the will of the Lord we saw last week that Matthew Henry said, the will of the Lord is the wisdom of the Lord. So all that, God, all that God decrees, all that he ordains to take place is a result of his perfect wisdom. There's not a single gap in God's knowledge. So we can be encouraged when we say, the will of the Lord be done. 
that's best. That does not mean that all things are going to be easy. Often it means that things are going to be really hard, difficult, even painful sometimes. We live in a sinful world, and people may do sinful things and make sinful choices. In our church's confession of faith, we talk about the relationship of God's will of decree and the choices of people. Let me read what this is under the, uh, under the, the title of Providence, which says this. God from all eternity decrees all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Pretty all-inclusive. Yet, so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. When the believers at Philip's house said, the will of the Lord be done, in relation to Paul going to Jerusalem, they knew very well that there were people there who were going to act in sinful ways. The prophets and the prophetesses had been warning them about that. But they still recognized that God's sovereign will would be done, even though there were people who were going to sin. Mentally, it's hard for us to make that neatly fit together. But the scripture makes it clear that God is sovereign over all things and also that man is fully responsible for every decision he makes. Additionally, of course, Paul says very directly, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's confessing clearly Jesus Christ is the Lord of his life. So no matter what the circumstances around him are, he would always seek to live with Jesus Christ as his Lord. He remembers all that the Lord Jesus did to save him when he was in the midst of persecuting the church. His life was transformed on that day on the way to Damascus. He believed, he submitted to Jesus as the promised Christ, and that reality would be the guide for all that he did. So Paul models for us the fact that no matter what we're facing in life, no matter what it might be, the bottom line is that Jesus Christ is Lord. All that we do, we do for the glory of his name. So Paul and those traveling with him continue on the trip to Jerusalem. The verses that we are considering this morning confirm that all that was prophesied about the things that would happen when Paul went to Jerusalem were fulfilled. So let me start by reading verses 17 to 26. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, <coughs> he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this, that we tell you, we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. 
But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. You remember that the whole purpose of the book of Acts really is to record how the gospel began to spread after Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus told the apostles before he ascended to the Father, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, that's exactly what has happened. After the Holy Spirit came in power on the believers at Pentecost, God used the apostles to powerfully preach the gospel in Jerusalem. The church grew by the thousands as many Jewish people believed in Jesus as the Christ. But, of course, there was opposition from the Sanhedrin, which led to Stephen, who was another one of the seven, who was stoned to death. That led to a persecution that caused the Christians to spread out beyond Jerusalem and ultimately through the ministry of Peter, but especially through the ministry of Paul, the gospel began to reach the remotest parts of the Roman Empire. Well, the conversation that Paul had with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church remind us of this amazing work of God. So they remind us then of our first point. Christ is always at work in building his church. He is always at work in building his church. Jesus promised that he would build his church. And the words that he spoke to the apostles about being witnesses from Jerusalem all the way to the remotest parts of the earth are a reflection of that promise of him building his church. But we see that Paul and those who were with him were gladly received by the brethren in Jerusalem. They were, the, the people of the church were very happy to see Paul. The next day they met with James and the elders of the church. This James, by the way, is probably the brother of Jesus, and uh, he uh, seems to be the pastor of the church at this time. And it seems likely also that the apostles are no longer there. Uh, they are probably out on various mission labors of their own. But the first thing that is talked about is the work that the Lord had done through Paul in his ministry among the Gentiles. And so when they hear about these things, they begin to glorify God. So these believers remind us then of this next point, that God gets the glory for the gospel work he does among the Gentiles, meaning the nations. The word Gentiles literally is, is nations. So Luke tells us that Paul, that Paul began to relate one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So this makes it clear that Paul wasn't just giving a vague report saying things have gone pretty well. He was giving a detailed report relating one by one with, with, with specifics about what had taken place. So he would have talked about his work in Syria and Cilicia, Lyconia. He would have given detail about the work in Macedonia, Achaia, Asia. This would include the special call he received that took him to Philippi. Then the work in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. The two years he spent in Corinth and how the Lord brought Aquila and Priscilla and then later Apollos to help in that work. I'm sure he spent a lot of time sharing about what took place in Ephesus and how that ministry ended up affecting the whole province of Asia. And all of this, God gets the glory. The Lord dramatically, of course, saved Paul, as we pointed out, 
and he told him he would have a special ministry to the Gentiles. He also told him there was going to be lots of suffering involved, and there was. But God used Paul and his fellow workers to share the gospel with people all over the Roman Empire, people who were committed to the idols of their culture, and God saved them. He brought thousands of them to faith in Christ in cities and regions all over the Roman Empire. So God was clearly at work in building his church among the nations of the world. That work has continued, of course, through history, and there's much more to come. We also see in these verses next that God gets the glory for the gospel work he does among the Jewish people, that he does among the Jewish people. The Lord used Paul to reach many Jewish people with the gospel when he shared in the synagogues, but now James and the elders talk about what's been going on in Jerusalem. They say that many thousands of Jews had also believed. This is not meant, of course, to give a specific number, but really just to communicate the fact that the number of Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ had increased substantially. Luke has not really given us much detail about what was going on in Jerusalem while Paul was bringing the gospel to the Roman Empire, but here we see that really quite a bit had been going on. The number of Jewish people, of course, has not grown exponentially over the, over the centuries uh, 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 um, uh, like those among the nations as far as people who have believed in Christ. But the Lord has promised that he still has a great gospel work among the Jewish people that is still to come, which, of course, something only God can do, and he will get the glory for that also. Well, then after sharing the great news about God's work in building his church among the Gentiles, among the Jews, we see there's a problem. So that in itself reminds us that there will always be challenges. There's always going to be challenges regarding the growth and maturity of Christ's church that must be addressed with wisdom. James adds in verse 20 that all of these believing Jews in Jerusalem are zealous for the law, probably referring to the fact that they were still practicing the ceremonial laws. This would include observing the feast, offering sacrifices, circumcising their children, food laws, various purification rites. They believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They were described as believers. And, of course, Christ is the fulfillment of all that those ceremonial laws pointed toward. Those laws really were no longer necessary. They had served their purpose. But since they, but they had not come to see that completely in a, in, a, in a truly clear way, and since the temple was still in Jerusalem, there was a strong pull to continue to partake in all of those things, even among the Christians. So the New Testament church was in something of a very unique situation. All the things that were given to Israel in the Old Testament were given to point to the coming Messiah. The sacrifices, for example, prescribed in detail in Exodus and Leviticus, were meant to point to the one sacrifice that Christ would make for sinners on the cross. The priesthood was meant to point to the fact that Christ would become our ultimate high priest, the one mediator between God and man. The purification and cleansing rites pointed to the fact that our sins must be forgiven and cleansed. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished that. Circumcision spoke of the covenant that God made with Abraham, reminded them that a child would be born who would fulfill the promises that God had given to Abraham. Well, that had happened. The child had come. 
Therefore, there was no further need to actually practice circumcision in that way. Christ had come, but the Jews were still doing that. Jesus made it clear also that worship was not dependent on a particular place any longer. But, of course, the temple was still in Jerusalem. Jesus had fully accomplished the salvation for all who would believe, but the priests were still offering uh, sacrifices at the temple. So there was this time of overlap, this time of overlap between what the old covenant had promised and the types that were there and what the new covenant fulfillment had come. There was an overlap. This was a real challenge for the first century Christians. It was a challenge for those who were Jewish to, 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 to navigate all that. It was a challenge for the Gentiles as well. Well, James draws attention to this challenge when he tells Paul that those and those with Paul, that all of the Jewish believers in Christ there in Jerusalem were zealous for the law. They were still practicing those ceremonial laws. Gentile believers were trusting the same Christ for their salvation, but of course they were not practicing those ceremonial laws. Uh, In fact, they were being told very specifically they had no need of doing that, like becoming Jews to become Christians. So this was a time in the church when people all over the Roman Empire, both Jews and Gentiles, were becoming Christians. But as exciting as that was, there were challenges that had to be faced. There's always challenges that have to be faced in the growth of the church. Just for a a few samples, in the early centuries, Christians were faced with with an issue. They had to decide what to do with believers who had pretended not to be believers during times of persecution so they wouldn't be put to death. So when the persecution was over, what do you do with those people who pretended not to be Christians? Now the persecution's over. Yeah, we were Christians all along. And you've had hundreds, maybe thousands of your friends who were put to death. What do you do with that? It's a big challenge. Those were some big issues. They were faced at different times with, with, with people who had views of the Trinity that were not consistent with Scripture. Lots of controversy on things related to that. They were faced with teachers who denied that certain books of the Bible really were inspired by God. They were faced with not being allowed by the church to read the Bible in their own language. And the list could go on and on and on of all kinds of challenges that were connected with the church. So praise God, Christ has promised to build his church. He continues to do that, but there's always going to be challenges. Now there's a couple applications we can make from these verses to help us think about dealing with those challenges. The first one is this. Consider opportunities to accommodate brothers and sisters who are weak in their faith. And generally, somebody as weak as somebody that you consider who doesn't know as much as you do. They probably look at you and think the same thing, that you're the weak one because you don't know as much as they do. So it can kind of work either way. But in verses 21 to 26, James and the other elders of the Jerusalem church lay out the problem, and they suggest a way that maybe Paul could do something to help address that issue. The problem was, of course, that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were being told by others that Paul was telling Jews that he, in the Gentile regions not to circumcise their children any longer, that they were not to walk according to the Jewish traditions, Jewish customs. 
this would include, the customs would include things from the law of Moses as well as traditions that have been handed down. And the way this is written, it's clear the elders know this isn't true, that Paul isn't being direct like that. He's not doing that. Paul understood that the ceremonial law, of course, had been fulfilled in Christ. Paul understood that these things were completely unnecessary for salvation. But he also had an understanding of the times in which they were living. And so he, underst he understood the overlap between the, the old and new covenant. So he was not going to force these ceremonial law issues with the Jewish believers. He wanted the gospel to be front and center. So the elders of the Jerusalem church have a suggestion. There were four men, members of the congregation, who were under what is probably here a Nazarite vow for purity. This was a rite that emphasized uh, just uh, being holy unto the Lord. They suggested that Paul join with these men in their vow and pay the required expenses that went along with that. And this would be a way to publicly show doubters that Paul still had a high regard for the law of Moses. So in this way, Paul would be accommodating the weaknesses and misunderstandings that others had about his ministry. They felt it would remove an unnecessary hindrance to his gospel ministry to both Jews and Gentiles. We also need to quickly say, though, this was in no way a compromise on Paul's part, or the elders as well, a compromise related to the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. They understood there was a line that could not be crossed. There, was a, that, that there were some things they could do to accommodate the, 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 the false understandings, but they would not compromise when it came to the gospel. Paul was strong in the fact, for example, that salvation is by grace, not by works. That truth could not be compromised. Gentile believers must not be made to think that they also must conform to the ceremonial law. The elders had addressed this back in, uh, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, and they bring it up again to say, okay, we still, we still believe that. You know, they made it clear that the Gentile believers had no obligation at all to become Jews in order to become Christians. They only asked them not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, not to consume blood, to engage in the fornication that was common in the Gentile world. So they wonder, they're trying to keep that line clear. There are things that we can do sometimes to accommodate a weakness in faith that maybe somebody else might have. Sometimes what that may mean is just kind of, one of the things, one of the ways I think that, that, that I've tried to, to, to apply this, there's there, sometimes you can get into a conversation and you kind of feel like, you know, your eye kind of starts to twitch on some of the things that they're bringing up and you think, I don't really agree with that. But I don't know that this is the context to talk about that, to talk about those disagreements, because I think it would just confuse the issue. And so your eye just keeps twitching, but you just kind of move on and just kind of agree with the things that you can agree with. There's some times that you can give some accommodation without compromising the truth, but you never, you're not going to stay quiet if they're saying things that are false as far as the gospel is concerned. If they are challenging basic doctrines of the Christian faith and compromising them, you, you don't stay quiet when things like that are being compromised even though there can be some things that we can do to accommodate some of those differences. Well, Paul took their suggestion 
he participated in the Nazarite vow purification right at the temple. Now, let me mention this too here. I have no doubt that Paul did not just do this just to go through the motions of doing it. He wasn't taking this vow just as a show for other people. I am sure he used the time to seek the Lord to renew his wholehearted dedication to Jesus Christ as Lord. So in that regard, I'm sure this was a positive thing in Paul's life, almost something of a retreat for him, you know, where he, where he would actually take that and make it in a positive way. But as we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, it did not at all have the effect that the others were hoping it would have. Well, let's pick up in verse 27 and read through the end of the chapter to see what did happen. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the crowd, seeing Paul, that is, in, in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the, holy, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the, temple, then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took some, along some soldiers and centurions, and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried up carried by the soldiers because of violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following, shouting, away with him. As Paul was, being, uh, was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Paul said, I'm a Jew of, of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. So the fact that Paul was seen in the temple led to a riot in which Paul was almost killed. It was not the Jewish Christians who started the riot. Instead, it was Jews from Asia who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, like Paul was. They were familiar with Paul, however, because he had spent so much time in Ephesus, which is in the province of Asia, and his influence had grown over the whole province there. So the, these Jews knew very well who Paul was. In addition, they recognized one of the men who was with Paul's mission team, because they had seen him earlier. His name was Trophimus. He specifically was from Ephesus. They wrongly assumed that Paul had taken this Gentile Christian to the temple with him, even though there are all kinds of warnings 
on the gates that would warn anybody on, on, on the threat of death to, to do that, they assumed he did, which was foolish. So because of the riot that took place, this is going to be the last time in the book of Acts that we see Paul having the ability to move around freely. From here till the end of Acts, he's either under some sort of arrest or imprisonment. Now this outcome leads us to see something else that we can learn as the church seeks to address serious challenges in the midst of its growth and maturity. We see this, that we must press on in gospel faith, remembering that God can use serious setbacks for his glory. God can use serious setbacks for his glory. So the warnings of Paul being afflicted, bound, handed into the hands of the Gentiles in Jerusalem have come to pass. And really, if not for the intervention of this Roman commander, who's going to come into the story uh, in the future chapters as well, if not for him, he would have been killed. And the descriptions that Luke gives shows how horrible this whole thing turned out. Probably most everybody involved would have seen this as a serious setback for the church. But there's more to the story. We will see as we continue through Acts that Paul took every opportunity to give a witness for Christ to the civil magistrates that he was brought before, people he never would have been in contact with if it hadn't been for this. We know that he was a witness, a regular witness to the soldiers who were given responsibility to watch over and guard him. Again, people he probably would not have been, had any access to otherwise. He also used his time under arrest to write letters to several of the churches that he was instrumental in starting. In this time frame, Paul would write the letter to the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, and a letter to Philemon. This is really quite a good return for the time that was certainly seen as a major setback for, a church, for the church. Those letters, which obviously are scripture, they're in our Bibles, those letters have been helping and encouraging Christians all over the world for 2,000 years. Everyone in this room, I think, could probably talk about ways in which number of those letters and passages from those letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison have been a help to you. One thing I want you to see here. Remember what the church said when Paul said, said I'm going to go no matter what you say. The will of the Lord be done. I wonder how many people are saying, Paul told you so told you it was going to work out bad. But then as the story goes on, there was a lot of good fruit that came from the will of the Lord being done. This is an important thing to keep in mind. Not every setback, that I mean, there often, there's going to be all kinds of setbacks. But God is the Lord of setbacks. He can use setbacks for his glory in ways that we cannot even anticipate. They were, I'm sure, weren't anticipating this to work out well. They were all saying, please don't go, please don't go, please don't go. That's terrible. Don't do that. It's a bad idea. The will of the Lord be done. And it was from so many different angles. The fact remains, 
Christ has promised to build his church. He's kept that promise. He's continuing to keep that promise. The work continues. Now, the other thing I want to address from this passage are the teachings of Paul that are alluded to here and the, the accusations of those who were so upset with him. So our second main point is this. Paul taught many foundational scriptural truths that were believed by many and rejected by others. Look at verses 27 and 28 of uh, chapter 21. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia began, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So as we noted before, these accusations were brought by Jews from, who were visiting from Asia. They are not spoken of as believers in Christ. These are not believers. Instead, they would have rejected the fact that Jesus was the Christ. They were calling on all the Jews to come to their aid to do away with this man who, in their opinion, was teaching horrible things. What was he teaching? Summed up in this way. He was teaching against the Jewish people. He was teaching against the law of God. He was teaching against the temple. So let's look at those three areas. So first, we learn from Paul that the gospel of salvation, the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ is for both Jews and Gentiles. Those who reject Christ will face judgment for their sin. In Romans 1.16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have seen over and over what Paul would do when he would enter a new city on one of his missionary journeys. If they had a synagogue, he would always go there first and speak the gospel to the Jewish people. At some point, many, oftentimes most in the synagogue would reject the truth that Jesus was the promised Christ, and at that point, Paul would leave the synagogue and then give his attention to preaching to the Gentiles, uh, people that were not Jewish. Well, Paul made it clear that both Jews and Greeks were guilty of sinning against the Lord. And as a result of that, I'm thinking especially from the book of Romans, as a result of that sin, all are under the deserved wrath of God. God is righteous. He must punish sin. He goes into detail, really, in those first few chapters of Romans about sins of both Jews and Gentiles. But then he makes it clear that Jesus Christ died for both Jews and Gentiles. And if they would repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord, they would be saved. But those who reject Christ would suffer under his wrath for eternity. Paul was also grieved that so many of his fellow Jews had rejected Jesus as the Christ. He said that because of their stubborn and unrepentant hearts, they were storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. It says that in Romans 2. But he also says later on in, in Romans that his heart and prayer to God for them was that they would be saved. Those who rejected Jesus as the Christ interpreted these things as Paul preaching against the Jews. They were wrong. They completely misrepresented 
his teaching because they had rejected Christ. Second, we learn from Paul that no one can be made right with God according to their works. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and it's only through faith in him that a person can be made righteous. So God's law, of course, reveals that he requires perfect righteousness. I've heard it said before, and this is really true, I mean, good people are a dime a dozen. God's not looking for good people. God's looking for perfectly righteous people. No one can measure up to that. Nobody can. When we think about God's law, his moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. And it's that law that lays out for us what that righteousness is supposed to look like. When speaking to the Jewish people in Romans, Paul acknowledges that they know the commandments of God. They've been given those commandments, and they, understand, and they know them. But he also points out they didn't keep them. In Romans 2, he speaks of how they outwardly give approval to God's law. But then, let me read what he says. This is from uh, Romans 2, 21. He says, you who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Then he, then he says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, and it's because of you. So he's saying, yes, you know the law, but you also know you don't do what it says. And the Gentiles, who don't have the law written like that, they see that and they think, <laughs> He said, your, your, your testimony, is, you have no testimony. Your testimony is a bad, they're disillusioned by, by our faith in God because of your behavior. He also said, Paul was also clear that Jesus Christ had fulfilled the things of the ceremonial law. There was no longer any need for circumcision because the one to whom circumcision was pointing had come in the flesh. There was no longer any need for sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. No longer any need for a priesthood because Jesus Christ was the ultimate high priest. So in this way, Paul is accused of speaking against the law. But in fact, he's praising the law. All that the ceremonial law had been pointing to had been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. And as to the moral law, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life according to the Ten Commandments. He obeyed the law outwardly. He obeyed the law by his inward purposes and motivation. He obeyed the law in the way he loved God. He obeyed the law in the way he loved people perfectly. So when a sinful person receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they receive the perfect righteousness that he earned for them. There's no way to be righteous before God, according to his law, apart from faith in Christ. So those who rejected Jesus as the Christ interpreted these things as Paul preaching against the law. They were wrong. They misrepresented his teachings, again, because they had rejected Christ. Third, we learn from Paul that true worship is through Christ in the spirit and, tr in spirit and truth. 
It is not limited to a particular place. In Romans 12, Paul talked about believers offering themselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to God in worship. This is what he calls this their spiritual service of worship. They could do this, Christians can do this because we are righteous in Christ. We can do this because Christ is our high priest and can offer ourselves up as a sacrifice to God. The Jews believed that this kind of worship really could only happen in the temple when the priests were offering sacrifice on the altar. Those sacrifices were, of course, prescribed by God, by God in the law of Moses, so it was right that they were done. But Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of all those sacrifices pointed toward, so they were no longer necessary. Instead, both Jews and Gentiles could offer up praises to God through Christ in every place and be fully pleasing to God. Again, those who rejected Jesus as the Christ interpreted these things as Paul preaching against the temple. They were wrong. They misrepresented his teachings, again, because they had rejected Christ. And, of course, that rejection of Christ seems to come to a head here in Acts 21, as far as Paul's concerned and their anger at him for how, what he has done, for how he has, the gospel that he's preached, and their, mis, their rejection of it and their misinterpretation of it. Now, there's one more thing we can learn from Paul in this passage that we'll close with. We learned that we should be aware of opportunities to respectfully share the truth. Beware of opportunities to respectfully share the truth. Paul was nearly killed in this riot. Several hundred Roman soldiers had to intervene. They came from a tower fortress that was uh, known as Antonia that was connected to the temple complex. They ran to Paul. They chained him between two soldiers and as they carried him back to the tower fortress where their barracks were, the Jews kept pressing in. And it got to the place that, is, that Luke says, and the way he writes, you can see, you can tell Luke was there. He saw what happened. They were pressing in so, so much that the soldiers finally had to lift up Paul to actually get him in to safety into, this, uh, into these barracks, into this, uh, where this tower was. It was bad. <laughs> well, in speaking with Paul, the Roman commander realized Paul was not who he thought he was. He was assuming this was he was he, this, this Egyptian who would cause all kinds of havoc, you know, in Jerusalem. And both the Jews and the Gentiles want, were wanted to be rid of him. He thought that's who he was because they had gotten rid of him, but nobody knew where he went. And so he realized, you're not that guy. And Paul makes an amazing request. He tells him who he is. And then he begged permission to speak to these people who had just tried to kill him. In chapter 22, we will find out what he said. And as you might, might expect, Paul speaks to them of Christ. Why would he do that? Remember what he said? I'm ready to die. Not just to be bound up in Jerusalem. I'm ready to die if need be for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he has an opportunity. An attack on his life is an opportunity to share the gospel. This is my chance. I've got him here now. 
I've got a crowd. This is my chance. I don't know if I'd be thinking that way. I'd be thinking, I want to get, <laughs> I want to get out of here. You know, hide me. He's thinking, I want to serve Christ in this way. And what a better, what better opportunity do I have? They're all going to listen to me. The commander is going to make sure of that. Just an amazing, just an amazing opportunity thing here. And it's a reminder to us. I mean, there's opportunities that come. And if we are living as, Christ, as Paul was saying he's living, and he's also demonstrating for us, with Jesus Christ as Lord, there's going to be opportunities that come. And by God's grace and by his spirit, he might show us that there's things we can say. There's ways we can be a help to people in times that oftentimes you wouldn't even think that way. But um, Jesus Christ is our Lord, and that makes all the difference, no matter what our circumstances might be. Lord, we want to thank you again for your word. It's a holy word. We sang about that. We read about that earlier. And we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the testimonies that are here related to things, uh, your work among Jewish people, your work among Gentile people, uh, your work in the Jerusalem church, your work in the Gentile churches, your work in Paul's life, and just the way that you used him as an example in so many ways. Lord, it also reminds us there's always going to be issues. There are going to be misunderstandings. There are going to be challenges, even oftentimes among Christians. Lord, help us to stand firm for what we know the truth of the gospel is. Help us to never be tempted to compromise the scriptures, but to stand true for what we know those doctrines teach. Help us to stand firm. Be willing to talk, but to stand firm on what we know that are true, the things that are true. And Lord, help us. There's all kinds of things that come up. We might even look at the things going on in the church at, at, at large. And there's all kinds of things that I see that cause me frustration and anger, sometimes alarm. But Lord, remind us, this is your work. Yes, we're supposed to be faithful, and we want you to enable us to do that. But you have a work that you're doing, and you have an amazing way of taking things that seem to be setbacks to us and using them to your glory. Lord, I trust that you can do that in, 20, in the 2020s just as well as you could in the first century. We trust you to work in your, continue to work in your church in that way, and we want to be a part of that. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, Paul exemplifies for you what it means for Jesus Christ to be your Lord. You receive him as your Savior. You trust him and walk with him as your Lord the rest of your life. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I have fallen short. I am not anywhere near righteous like you require of me. But I know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me, and I want to receive what he did for me on the cross to pay for, for my sins. And I want to receive him as the Lord of my life and walk with him as my Lord the rest of my days. If you want to talk more about that commitment to Christ, you can make it on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us at the website. It is in the name of Christ.